I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader in which we are discussing Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. We have come to the the penultimate episode of our discussions about the book, the text itself, you know, before we get to the Q&A. So really, it's the third to the last episode, but you get what I'm saying. And in this section, we're going to be discussing John Grady Cole's return to the Hacienda, um, his his journey there, and then his conversation with Alejandra's great aunt, and then the very beginning of his reunion with Alejandra. But I cut off the reading right in the middle of that, sort of on purpose, and I'll explain why later. But let's get right into it, because one of the things that we have talked about is the way this book becomes, it, it changes with each, I don't know, each new section. And here in the third part, we get an entirely different book than we got in the last part where we got this sort of prison novel with this gruesome experiences that John Grady Cole has lived through. And here in this part, we got what the best I could come up with was a Dostoevskian philosophical novel here for about Mm. 35 pages. This becomes a very philosophical novel. And my question for you guys is, well, it has been noted that we have not criticized this book much (laughs) on these episodes, in part because, you know, we love it. But I'm wondering if that is jolting for you or, you know, Heidi, I'd be curious to know what you think, what you think of that. Like, does this, does this shift from this like gruesome, intense experience that he has into this pretty deeply philosophical novel as being, that's talking about worldviews and fate and all this kind of stuff in a very direct way topics that it has dealt with previously, but indirectly, the, the directness of it is very different than what we've gotten. Is that jolting for you or does it feel in keeping with what he has been doing? Uh, I, I go back and forth on that question. The conversation he has with La Dama, as they call mm-hmm. her, the lady boss, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. is, I think, the weakest part of the novel, but has some of the most beautiful writing. And so I go back and forth on it as I was reading it. I, it just, it has absolutely stunning writing and it's important to know her backstory in order to understand Mm -hmm. how she pushes Alejandra here. And that this isn't just a woman who is defending traditional Mexican values. Like she's a very complicated Mm -hmm. person and a very damaged person. And, um, and it's, it is important to know that in order to put his relationship with Alejandra in the right context. But I mean, nobody mm-hmm. talks like that, right? Like that's not a real conversation. And that is part of, I think, the complexity of Cormac McCarthy. He's got something to say and he's going to put it in his novel and we accept the terms of that or not. But I remember when I was listening to it the uh, last year, I think I even texted you guys and I was like, I, I think I even put a little bit of, I think I put an eye roll emoji about this whole section <laughs> because nobody talks that. like this. But I think it's necessary to the novel. And so therefore it stands and we accept it or reject it. And if you reject it, you miss a lot of the novel. So I think we have to accept it. You, you think that nobody speaks like um, La Duena speaks. Is that what you mean? Yeah. And Tim, nobody talks like that. Oh, so I, 
So, yes. I don't know. I don't think that I actually don't think that's true. I mean, all right. Good. Good. Look, a disagreement. We're making the people happy. <laughs> there are sections where um, Cormac McCarthy kind of cuts away. And for example, shortly before the meeting between the great aunt and John Grady Cole, there is John Grady Cole has a conversation about horses and kind of like territory with some of the guys that he used to work with. And McCarthy doesn't give us direct quotes from them, but he gives us kind of, um, I don't know how you would describe it. He encapsulates the philosophy that these workers adhere to about no man can be, every man is part of the territory that he's born to, the clouds and the mountains like shape him. And I see McCarthy as sort of giving a summary of what they believe while not quoting them directly. By contrast, all of the conversation between John Grady Cole and the great aunt, it's a direct quote. Like he's just taking dictation is McCarthy about this conversation. And I find the conversation to be completely plausible. She is a extremely well-educated person. She's kind of this mixture of maybe a British education system with the old school values of Spain. I completely agree with you that she's not just advocating for like these traditional mores, but we're talking more about like the kind of mode of diction that she's speaking in. I find it plausible. I think she's such a measured and internally organized character that I believed what she was saying. Now, there are other occasions where McCarthy is giving an assessment or he's kind of giving kind of like a hagiography almost of what a certain character believes philosophically. And I don't find those things to be terribly realistic, but I think that he does not quote from those characters intentionally because I think he's style, he's stylistically representing what they believe. You know, the, the Cormac, the narrator's paraphrase. Yeah. Right. Is that what you mean? Right. And I do think there's a, we need to, you know, keep a distinction between Cormac McCarthy and the narrator, even in a book, even with someone who has a, as unique a voice, as distinct a voice as Cormac McCarthy as a writer, just because a character or the narrator offers some kind of belief doesn't mean that our author does, you know, believes that in their life for sure. Like, I'm not saying he doesn't, but like, let's not make assumptions based on the narrator about the author. But, but David, you're talking about like, you're talking about the content, the kind of like philosophical content. I, I, I thought that this conversation was more about stylistically, is this, well, okay. is this realistic diction that we're getting from the great aunt. So that, okay. That's it. Okay. Cause my question, that's not how I heard Heidi, what Heidi was saying, but I had three follow-up questions to what Heidi was saying. And one of them was when you say nobody talks like this, what do you mean by like, like this, like what? Cause you're, you heard her saying like diction. I heard her talk, saying that people don't talk about those kind of things. So I, I would like to know, right. Get a clar- her, clarification. Her on that. voice sounds to me so much like Cormac McCarthy that this feels to me like the John Galt speech. It's a great comparison. Um, Atlas shrugged. It feels as if the narrator is 
it feels to me as if Cormac McCarthy is speaking through her to hit us over the head with her philosophy. So, and it's sort of, it is sort of just to recount what you're saying, Heidi, it's kind of, um, it lilts with the tongue, not of the duena, but of Cormac McCarthy. It, it's accent, it's, it's diction, it's like structure is more McCarthy than it is the great aunt. Is that right? Yes. It feels like she's reading an essay, not speaking. Um, I think that he did that on purpose, and I think we can debate whether or not it works, but it doesn't sound like a conversation. He's so good at dialogue, mm. though, that mm-hmm. it feels like an intentional decision on his part. Like, he's like, I got something mm-hmm. to say through this woman, and I'm going to say it, and if it sounds like an essay, it's because it is. But to me, it loses its believability as a conversation. I mean, I don't think that uh, she thinks she sees it as a conversation either. <laughs> no, I mean, I think yeah. that's kind of a dramatic point. Like, right. That's he, what I'm he saying. Can't, he, mm-hmm. he cannot keep up with what she's saying. That's like, that's the entire concept here. And she is giving him a lecture that is basically both a, hist- a history of her life and the history of Mexico. And like that's, she sees the world in a certain, in a certain way. Do and you, she's do just you find telling him, this John- is why I did what I did. Do you find John Grady Cole's replies to be like believable? Uh, yeah, I do. I've, it's particularly consistent with his character. Yes. Yeah. So then that's the question I have about her though, because what I wrote down is when you, nobody talks like this, I wrote down, does that mean that she doesn't speak like herself? Because when I read it, I don't read her as sounding different than she did earlier in the book. In other words, I think there is a consistency of character. Mm. And so then the question becomes whether I need to suspend my disbelief about the character herself. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good question. And to me, no, she is the same. So, the, okay. So, so there's, a, there's a question of character, uh, um, maybe a little more so than the particular conversation. Like the character throughout the book is the weakest part of the book. I really liked your, no, that's a good question. It's, I really liked your comparison to Dostoevsky because there's no question in my mind and maybe readers or you two would disagree with this. There's no question in my mind that the John Galt speech in Atlas Shrugged that I compared it to is a disaster. It's a total failure, right? However, another good comparison to this conversation is Ivan's Grand Inquisitor speech in The Brothers K in which... Ivan makes his case that there could not possibly be any God. And here's why injustice, suffering, hunger, blah, 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 blah. Right. And that is a masterpiece and nobody talks like that either. Right. So I, I, like I said, I'm, what I'm saying is the, the story is so believable as just a story until it gets to this long speech by the, by the, by this woman. And, and then it just becomes, okay, like five pages of Cormac McCarthy is telling us what Mexico is like. Right. And he's using her speech as a way to do that. He's telling us something through this character. The character is good. It's consistent. Same as Ivan's voice. The grand inquisitor stands alone as a masterpiece of a work of art. It's beautiful writing. Same in here. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think, 
it just, to me, absolutely fails as a conversation, but totally succeeds as a really good speech. If you, if you could use a different word other than conversation, could you find another word? Well, no, because it is supposed to be a conversation. Yeah. She's, she's talking to him and right. you could make the case that she prepared something to say and she's smart and all that point. Like what you said, isn't wrong. I think just to me, I was just reading it kind of like, okay, Cormac, you're making a case here. And so yeah. to me that deviates from the story. I agree with you. This is the weakest part of the book. Um, but and it's I've beautiful read beautiful writing. It's beautiful writing. And I think, I think that I can kind of tolerate this section because I, the thing that I appreciated about it is how it establishes a sense of timing that works within the overall book. That was poorly said. It is a long pause after like a, a series, like 50 or 60 pages of intense, brutal action. And now we return to the Hacienda and there's this, you know, obviously she talks for basically 15 pages. It's half of the reading that we did is her talking. And for, for that reason, I kind of appreciate it because it, it kind of like creates a sense of kind of aftermath after the prison. I agree with you. It's the weakest. It's not strong. And every time I read this book, I'm like, okay, here comes the aunt scene. What am I supposed to get out of this? Why am I doing, why are we reading this Cormac other than to slow the pace down after the intensity of the previous 50, 60 pages? What's confusing to me about it, I, I love the comps that you have, Heidi. John Galt's speech in Atlas Shrugged and Ivan's speech in um, the Brothers Karamazov, both of them. One of which is one of the worst examples of a speech in literature and one of which is one of the best. <laughs> and they're both highly philosophical. They're trying to articulate something. With John Galt's speech, it's interminable. There's no, it's all it is is just an essay that Ayn Rand wrote yes. and plunked it down in the middle of a bunch of cardboard characters. And it's atrocious, but it gets the point across. Ivan, by contrast, very philosophical, long-winded, um, and I agree with you, it's more successful. And I think it's Dostoevsky speaking through Ivan, but I, and I, and I kind of read it to be Dostoevsky speaking his worst fears aloud in some way, you know, like I think he's going to ultimately in Brothers Karamazov, he gives an, a counterpoint to Ivan's speech. What I, what's confusing to me is why a history of Mexico? I mean, we, we've talked on this podcast about how important Mexico is to kind of like this journey that John Grady Cole is on, but that's not the aspect of Mexico that we're really seeing, is it? It's not um, this unindustrialized land that still has the remnants of like the great romance of exploration and like a, a close being with nature. It's like about the Mexican civil war and the fight for independence and the growth of democracy. And, and so that's the part that is always confusing to me about this. If it is 
McCarthy inserting philosophy, it seems so counter to like the, the overall theme of Mexico in the book. Am I wrong? Am yeah. I crazy? I, <laughs> the thing that makes this complicated to me, what makes it compelling to me is that there is a relative lack of consistency in the ideas presented by her in her speech with the philosophy presented throughout the rest of the book. Like, I don't by think that we're necessarily supposed by to her? see by other characters okay. and by the action and drama that McCarthy has presented throughout the book. So I think that there is like, I don't think that we're supposed to see her as being this, tr this sage, this true source of wisdom. I think she is representative of a perspective and of an experience. One of the things that I was struck by this section is that line. You remember when he, after he leaves, he's no, he, when he's, I can't remember where it is exactly, but he's talking to the children and he retells the story of everything that's happened to him. And they're just kind of like in awe of his story and feel sorry for him. Well, there's this line where it says, the boy said that as he had a horse, he could not be so very poor. And they looked at John Grady for a decision on this question. And he told them that in spite of appearances, he was indeed very poor and that the horse had been given to him by the grandmother herself. At this, some of them drew in their breath and shook their heads. And then there's this little bit here. The girl said that he needed to find some wise man with whom he could discuss his difficulties or perhaps a Corandera. And the younger girl said that he should pray to God. And I was struck by, they have this whole conversation in which she acts as this sage-like character who's giving him all this advice. It's like, you know, he, it's like he encountered like a monk somewhere or something, the way she's talking to him or some wise figure. And then here, these children draw attention to the fact that he doesn't have that. And so from the very beginning of the book, he has been a wanderer without a guide. And I think that in some ways, what she recognizes in, in, in her story is that there is a fine line between Alejandro becoming that, becoming also a wanderer without a guide and thus becoming like John Grady and basically being aimless. And then, of course, we get the bit with Alejandra where she talks about how her father basically left. You know, she, he, she doesn't know what a relationship with him is like and she's going to be gone and she doesn't know what her future holds either. And then that's where we cut off the reading. So I think that there is a dramatic purpose for that speech and that moment. That speech that goes being... beyond just the, the, the whole, con the whole quote, quote, conversation slash speech between the God, the great aunt okay. and John Grady. I think there's a dramatic purpose for that, that deepens the drama of the novel, even as it calls us out of the sort of novel that we were just in. That's why I think it's so fascinating the way he works in these different modes of storytelling in this one book. And it's not even a terribly long book. And I think I agree with you that it's the weakest section in terms of, but, but I, I, I don't know if that's because he's asking us to suspend our disbelief in a new way which is not something that a lot of novelists attempt to do. And that, and there's such a fine line in asking us to do that. David, what but do I you think, think there's the still drama behind, go ahead. And what is, what is the dramatic purpose behind her speech? Well, that's kind of what I was trying to get at with the, with how she brings up John Grady's sort of leaderlessness. He's this kid. And I, we are constantly drawn, reminded how young he is and at the beginning, he's, he doesn't have the ranch anymore, right? His father has basically, he 
his mother leaves him um, for to fend for himself. His father's not capable. The grandfather has died. He now doesn't even have his friends. I think it heightens the 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 idea that he's alone, and it in placing it, it places him within this larger context of Mexican history. Sure, but I think it reminds us that he doesn't have this. She tries to play this role of this sage, this wise figure, but she doesn't really have anything for him other than to say, "Go away. This is not. These are not your people." And I think that that there's a lot of like we there's a lot of pathos in that. Like I come away from the conversation feeling like he has been abandoned again by a figure who chooses to abandon him because she chooses to make a decision for Alejandro that she thinks is best for her. Um, I'm kind of not sure that I'm expressing what I'm trying to say that I think McCarthy's doing very well, but um, that that was my attempt. <laughs> Yeah, he has to give us a reason why he's invented this woman. She's an incredible character, right? She's she's complex. She's way more than, you know, just the defender of the family values. And she she knows that Alejandra and JGC truly love each other. And she just she's justifying herself, right? Like, I'm going to end this. And she right. calls him her enemy like i'm telling mm-hmm. you all of these things because a, a, a man should know his enemies so she's placing herself in opposition to him while at the same time <laughs> treating him as you said with kind of almost this like tenderness and this confiding you know mm-hmm. it's a she's really recognizing complex. how he's gonna look at her yes um so i it is it is a really important moment in the book and i i don't want to i i feel like cormac mccarthy couldn't resist the opportunity to monologue a bit and not for himself but for her <laughs> wouldn't be the first time right like it's it, and so i i just feel like there's more subtle ways to get the dynamic between the two and but he wanted he wanted to he wanted to say a thing and that's what he did well, okay. So what is it that he wants to say? Because I just don't think that this is, I don't think she's expressing his philosophy because no, I think that the she's book. Not. No, I agree. So what is it totally. that Cormac McCarthy wants to say? Well, that's that, what I'm I mean, confused about. It's just about. like, it's, I mean, in some, in some ways that's the same as the grand inquisitor, right? Because Ivan doesn't speak for Dostoevsky. Ivan speaks for the nihilism that's at the heart of the disintegration of the culture. And that is, and, and Dostoevsky okay. does that throughout his, his, his work. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. and, and I think she is expressing the, the conflict of the book, you know, like what she says about the blood, like everything in Mexico must be paid for in blood, whether it's virgins, bulls, or men, that is absolutely stunning writing. That's so beautiful. And it's stuck in the middle of a paragraph in 15 pages of a long monologue. Why not break it up and make it more of a conversation to like get these, like there's so many, there's so much beautiful writing in there. So I just, I found the monologuing to be monotonous. Um, But 
her philosophy that she's expressing this like kind of this savagery at the heart of this primeval culture is that and it's such a divide it's a culture divided against itself and she is almost like this manifestation of its division right to be this young revolutionary who ends up thwarted and then becomes a thwarter right it's she's such a compelling character um and so much of what she says is just so beautifully drawn in this. I just, I wish it wasn't a monologue, but I've already said that. So I'm going to stop saying it, but just, there's a lot of really amazing things about her long speech as well. It, for me, the, the, the question of what the monologue is doing is almost a question of what key of the different keys that McCarthy has set forward in the book what key is being played? So let me put forward a few of the keys that we've talked about. Justice is one, um, for lack of a better word, like the desire that um, John Grady Cole has for um, the spiritual longing that John Grady Cole has, that I think he associates with the kind of like untamed spirit of Mexico romance, the romance between he and Alejandra is another one. Friendship maybe is another one. He and um, Blevins and, excuse me, Rollins. So, you know, and there may be like a couple of other keys. Having read this and been confused by this monologue so many times, I, I, the place that I kind of land now is this is less about Mexico, even though ostensibly the whole story is about Mexico. Everything that she's talking about is about Mexico, that, you know, revolution, civil war, mm -hmm. leadership, blood, it's all about Mexico. But I actually wonder if this is more in the key of the injustice uh, that um, John Grady Cole has been experiencing and is going to experience through the end of the book. Because mm -hmm. I read this as... I, I think you're completely right, Heidi. This is a woman who's like divided, you know, between herself. In some ways, she sounds like a traditionalist and she looks like a traditionalist. And on the other hand, she's a newborn feminist, you know, like clearly a woman of the 20th century. On the one hand, she wants to protect Alejandra in a traditional mode. On the other hand, she wants Alejandra to kind of like be a liberated woman in the way that she sees herself as a liberated woman. So I see her as like, really being at odds with herself. And what I think, Rick, ultimately, the story of this monologue is she is a disgruntled and bitter crone who does not want someone to have, John Grady Cole, to have something that she could not have. I mean, on page 229, he looked at her. I'd have thought maybe the disappointments in your own life might have made you more sympathetic to other people. You would have been wrong. I guess so. It is not my experience that life's difficulty make people more charitable. So I just wonder if that's what's going on here. Like it's, it's the um, monologuing about Mexico is kind of a distraction from what really is happening, this is John Grady Cole learning the news that, you know what, life's not fair 
and I made it unfair to you because I'm a bitter crone and that's the way that it's going to go for you. Well, okay. So that's really interesting because at the beginning of this section, he's, he's at the crossroads station. He gets in the truck with the, the farm workers. Do you remember this part? Yeah. And I love this section because it's so different than what we have just experienced. It says, and after, and for a long time to come, he'd have reason to evoke the recollection of those smiles and to reflect upon the goodwill which provoked them. For it had power to protect and to confer honor and to strengthen resolve. And it had power to heal men and to bring them to safety long after other, all other resources were exhausted. And I, I was so struck by how distinct that is from everything that he's experienced so far and how he, he, and then how distinct it is even from what he's about to experience with, with the bitter old crone, as Tim mm-hmm. put it. So I, that got me thinking. And on the so other side, I'm sorry to interrupt David, on the other side no. of the bitter old crone are these children, like these beautiful, right. wise, sympathetic children who recognize, who like are his advocates from the beginning, you know, like, like, in mm-hmm. some ways, yeah, yeah. the aunt is like this descent into prison again. I mean, I'm, I'm overblowing yeah. it for the sake of making the point, but he's surrounded, at, you know, in Mexico by in some, in, on either side of the conversation with um, the aunt, he's surrounded by hospitality and goodness, you know, but with her. Well, uh, yeah. So, so that's exactly what I was thinking about is I started, as I was reading from this point on, I started marking every time someone did something kind to him. Mm. So whether it was um, making him sandwiches, whether mm, it was yeah. um, helping him into the car, helping him into the truck, giving him a place to see it. Cause they realized he was standing sharing food with him. And I, I, at one point I had gotten like, I think I had gotten to 14 or 15. And so it was, it was fascinating to me that this is the section marked by repeated acts of kindness towards him, every single one of them by someone who was poor. Hmm. And then on the other hand, we have, we have the great aunt who believes she is, she realizes what she's doing to him, but she realizes that it is for a greater good. And, and all of her philosophy whether she's talking about the revolutionaries that she loved, her father sending her away from school, the actions that her and her nephew took towards her great niece. Every single time they're talking about something, their philosophy is bound up in the notion of greater good. Justice, this is just because it enacts some greater good. And in contrast to them is these everyday people who don't have things, who are sharing them with no notions of justice at all. And there's even that line where like the old man pre, uh, prays. Yeah, there's no greater good in their minds. They're not like doing this for some greater good. They're doing this for their neighbor. And it's as if to say justice, is, the questions of justice are not questions of worldview. In other words, of the way you live your life. Um, worldview is the wrong word there, but in turn, they're, they're not, qu- to, to be consumed with matters of justice is to, is to forget your neighbor. And these other people are consumed and they're not, he's not even their neighbor, but he treats them like they treat him like a neighbor. Um, and there's that, he, this, that guy prays early on, 
Uh, he asked that God remember those who had died, and he asked that the living gather together. He remembered that the corn grows by the will of God, and beyond that will, so beyond the will of God, there's neither corn nor growing nor light nor air nor rain nor anything at all save darkness. And then they ate. And there's like this recollection, this like this sense of gratitude at the will of God that leads them to take action as opposed to making things just through their own participation, their own money, their own resources, their own will, which is what this, this wealthy Mexican former revolutionary is consumed by. Mm. And they're worried that that the, what's the worst possible thing that could happen to Alejandra. She's no longer, she loses her, her status, right. And her reputation. And these are the people, their kind and, and reputation and status are irrelevant to them. Um, maybe if they had it, it would be, but it, but it opens up a different world mm -hmm. to him. And mm -hmm. he responds to like, he, every time that happens to him, he, he is, it's like, he it's as if he is softened. Um, and I just found that really compelling yeah. throughout this section. Yeah, I can see Even as too. I think it's perhaps the weakest section, I think, I think it's McCarthy. He, he offers these moments of kindness that, that, uh, I don't have any problems, any trouble suspending my disbelief for. Uh, and I, and I think they're kind of what make, make me continue to say like this, these are not, this is not a nihilistic story. Heidi, just, Heidi you unmuted, not, so go ahead. It's definitely not a nihilistic story. The, the, what's really interesting though, is that what the great, aunt has created in her mind right as like what is really mexico right mm -hmm. mexico is a place where um the especially she's specifically speaking for women in her speech as well right that there's this patriarchal system that exploits women and um and, and that there are mm -hmm. these old mm -hmm. ways that will swallow up any attempt to create justice, right? And that everything that you want must be taken and paid for in blood, right? And that was what she insists is at the heart of this culture. It was really interesting though, is that she's the one creating that culture for JGC, right? She's the one forcing him to pay in blood mm -hmm. for what he wants for Alejandra and for the horses. And so it's, there's this really interesting interplay between what she says about fate and what she says about blood and desire and duty and all of these, all of, <laughs> but she's the one Bingo. Uh, just in there. She's the one pulling the strings that forces him to have to pay in blood for what he wanted and what he mm. took without permission. So she's creating that. Mm. Um, but she yeah. insists that that's just how we are in Mexico. And I think as you've pointed out, David, all these little moments of grace and kindness are, are these like, intriguing kind of create this intriguing dissonance and question mark in our minds like is she right or is she just the one is she just the puppet master and because there's all this other kindness and goodness and yet the prison hellscape was i mean with all like there's just all this contradiction 
and paradox embedded mm. within the story, which is what makes it great. And so in a sense, we have to have that monologue from her in order to understand the, what the, the dissonance and the contradiction that McCarthy's trying to bring to the surface here and ask us as readers. Would you guys mind if I read the section um, with the kids? It's two pages long. I, I really think to me, it, it might be of all of the aspects of this book that I love, these two pages might be my very favorite. With with the kids? Yeah, with the kids after the kids? he leaves the yeah. hacienda. For me, okay, it starts yes. on 243. Before you do that, can I read one line that she says that yeah, I think yeah, yeah. is worth keeping in Please. mind? So she says, she's talking about Francisco when she's talking to JGC. And she says, Francisco Madero was surrounded by plotters and schemers from his first day in office. His trust in the basic goodness of humankind became his undoing. And then you have to Girl, contrast that with what I was talking about. Exactly. And, but then that's being contrasted. Like JGC has been, he's hearing that line in the midst of having been shown human kindness by strangers in a way that even his family never showed him. Yeah. And so JGC is being slapped in the face by both good, the goodness of humankind and someone saying that the, the goodness that I'm experiencing is not real. And so I just think that's worth keeping that, that line that she presents there is worth keeping in mind as we're about to have this conversation with the kids. So the conversation happens kind of on the bank of a river, if I'm not mistaken, he's got John Grady Cole has got this like wonderful meal that's been made for him back at the Hacienda by like the Mexican kind of woman who keeps the kitchen. And he starts sharing the meal with them. He's taking, you know, he's not eaten a lot during the last yeah, few right. months. And he immediately, yeah. you know, like kind of returns the hospitality that's been given to him. Apple turnovers. All right. And the great food also. They sat in a row along the edge of the path, five of them, in the sandwich halves of cured ham from the hacienda were passed to the left and to the right. And they ate with great solemnity. And when the sandwiches were gone, he divided with his knife the fresh baked tarts of apple and guava. This is on the top of 243. Donde vive, said the oldest boy. John Grady Cole mused on the question. They waited. I once lived at a great hacienda, he told them, but now I have no place to live. The children's faces studied him with great concern. Puede vivir con nosotros, they said. And he thanked them. And he told them that he had a novia who was in another town and that he was writing to ask her to be his wife. Es bonita, su novia? they asked. And he told them that she was very beautiful and that she had blue eyes, which they could scarcely believe. But he told them also that her father was a rich hacendado, where he, while he himself was very poor. And they heard this in silence and were greatly cast down at his prospects. The older of the girls said that if his novia truly loved him, she would marry him no matter what. But the boy was not so encouraging. He said that even in families of the rich, a girl could not go against the wishes of the father. The girl said that it was the grandmother who must be consulted because she was very important in these matters and that he must take presence and try to win her to his side for without her help, little could be expected. She said that all the world knew this to be true. John Grady Cole nodded at the wisdom of this, but he said that he had already given offense where the grandmother was concerned and could not depend on her assistance. And at this several of the children ceased to eat and stared at the earth before them. Es un problema, said the boy. De acuerdo. One of the younger girls leaned forward. Que ofensa la dio uh, a la abuelita, she said. Es una historia larga, he said. 
I tiempo, they said. He smiled and looked at them, and there was indeed time he told them all that had happened. He told them how they had come from another country, two young horsemen riding their horses, and that they had, scared, they had met with a third who had no money, nor food to eat, nor scarcely clothes to cover himself, and that he came to ride with them to share with them all that they had. This horseman was very young, and he rode a wonderful horse, but among his fears was the fear that God would kill him with lightning, and because of this, he lost his horse in the desert. He then told them what had happened concerning the horse and how they had taken the horse from the village of Incantara, and how the boy had gone back to the village of Incantara and there had killed a man, and that the police had gone to the hacienda and arrested him and his friend, and that the grandmother had paid their fine and then forbidden the novia to see him anymore. When he was done, they sat in silence. And finally, the girl said that what he must do is bring the boy to the grandmother so that he would tell her that he was the one at fault. And John Grady Cold said this was not possible because the boy was dead. When the children heard this, they blessed themselves and kissed their fingers. The older boy said that the situation was a difficult one, but that he must find an intercessor to speak on his behalf because if the grandmother could be made to see that he was not to blame, then she would change her mind. The older girl said that he was forgetting about the problem, that the family was rich and he was poor. The boy said that as he had a horse, he could not be so very poor. And they looked at John Grady for a decision on the question. And he told them that in spite of the appearances, he was indeed very poor and that the horse had been given to him by the grandmother herself. At this, some of them drew in their breath and shook their heads. The girl said that he needed to find some wise man with whom he could discuss his difficulties or perhaps a corandera. And the younger girl said that he should pray to God. It's so great. It's so great. (laughs) One comment, the thing that strikes me about this passage is that the children are so wise. These are kids. These are not teenagers. These are not 20 year olds. They're very young and they are like, they kind of know the shape of the world. The advice that they're giving him is really great advice. It's a lot better advice than Rollins and Blevins give a lot of the time, you know. But it's Mexican advice. This is mm-hmm. why this is this is what's so important about this section is that the grandmother has just or the godmother, la dama, like la dueña, right? She has told them how it is in Mexico. And then he goes out and she's mean and she's his enemy. And then he goes out and meets some children and they essentially tell him exactly what the grandmother told him without all of the monologuing and uh, confirm everything she said, which is you can't be with Alejandra because you have to go through me and I'm your enemy. And also you've slept with Alejandra and our father hates you. Right. And, and there's these cultural there, there, there's never no question of a moral obstacle to their union. The question is cultural, right? She's rich and Mexican and you're poor and American. And there's no way to make this work, especially now that the family is your enemy. That's and and JGC's constantly he's trying to get around this, right? Because he's an American and there's always a way to get around your obstacle as an American. And you could be with the woman you love and you can you, know, you we'll figure it out because I'm an American and that's how Americans are. And they're saying like 
this, the reason these children are wise is, is not because they're morally superior, but because they're embedded within the culture and the culture itself is the obstacle. And even the, even LaDuania says that to him, that these, that there's poor children. Remember she tells, she tells the story about these poor children and then they hit about 12 years old. And then this like lostness comes over yeah. them and they're, they're gone. They're absorbed within the depravity of the culture, but then into the brutality of what it means to, to live in this culture. Well, it, I, I agree with that, Heidi. Like they, that's part the wisdom that they have is because they're embedded in this culture. But I find it interesting that they don't object to the relationship with Alejandra, despite knowing they're trying to help them. Right? They're yeah. like, this is how you get. This is, but the the advice they give him is not moral advice. It's cultural advice. Go talk to the grandmother. Try to get it right. Try to make it right. Try to tell the truth. Blah blah blah. Well, she doesn't. But but. What do you mean by moral? Because I don't think the grandmother have particularly has like a moral. That's what I'm her. saying. There is no moral obstacle to their union. It's a cultural obstacle to their union. It's interesting that they end like their, what's their advice at the end? Find a wise man, pray to God. Find a wise man. That's right. God. And pray to God. There's yeah. a sense of faith. That's, right. They're basically saying, find a priest, pray to God. That's basically what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And, and it serves this beautiful, I mean, this is one of my favorite moments in the whole story because it, it is, these are kind, benevolent, as you said, Tim, wise kids, right? But they confirm every single thing that the grandmother just said. They just do it from a benevolent viewpoint. And essentially what they arrive at is like, your case is hopeless, but we like you, gringo. So pray to God, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that's your last hope. And what, as we know from Cormac McCarthy, that's probably not really a hope. So that's... <laughs> The thing that what I, they do is like they have this kindness, but they also have this hopelessness to it, you know. So mm. anyway, go ahead, David. Well, I was just going to say at the end of this section, he he then goes to sleep and he sleeps for twelve hours, first long sleep in a long time, and then he when he wakes up, they're playing with the horse in the courtyard, and then he sees, mm. and then he sees her, and I, the children playing with the horse, I think is 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 an interesting. Like they're pulling its tail and the horse is some kind of a, he's kind of letting it happen. I, f- I find that to yeah, be fascinating. He's long suffering. Yeah. I'm not sure what to make of that exactly, but, um, and then we get to, we get to Alejandra and they have a, they have a few conversations and then we're going to save the rest of their encounter and what happens after that for the next episode. So in the next, the last few minutes of the show here, we're going to go as long this week as we sometimes do, but I guess I'll just, you know what? I'm just going to put it out there for final thoughts now because we can save as much of this Alejandra stuff for the last episode as, as necessary. But do you have um, anything on this Alejandra, you know, as we segue into her, into her part, um, it ends on 252 where it says she took a handkerchief from her purse. I'm sorry. She said people are looking at us. She basically explains her fears with, of her relationship with her father and, and all that. Um, but any, any thoughts on any of this? Yes, I I think that this section is really important. The question was raised on the Facebook page whether or not um, John Grady Cole and Alejandra had to have a uh, a consummated relationship in order for the story to work. Could it not have been just that he was in love with her? And I think this section proves why they needed to have slept together in order to for the story in order to make this story 
internally consistent because through that, then we get to see that Alejandra is just as lost and broken as John Grady Cole. And she's always been this like kind of like triumphant feminine icon, right? In mm. the story. It's she so important the, the way that everyone looks at her, I think, when they're in the restaurant. Yes. Like, exactly. Yes. And she has this beauty and this power over John Grady Cole. And she's rich and powerful and all of these things, right? And mm. he's he's the one risking something. And now we get to see that she has risked and lost everything on him as well. And so she's much more humanized in this section, which I think is important. And we get to see just the brokenness of the relationship with her father. She says what she says like there on the top of 252, I didn't know that he would stop loving me. Mm. I didn't know he could. Now I know. And I, I understand the purpose she serves in the story, but I'm, I'm a woman. Like that is so that to like lose the love of your father because you've, because of something like that is the saddest thing. Like that she's lost just as much as he has. And she might get to maintain it on the outside. Right. Because they've swooped in and, but they, the family swooped in to kind of like, you know, protect her behind this wall of, but but she's lost her dad. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the reputation and doesn't really isn't everything. She said, "I love like he doesn't love me anymore." Like that's so so sad. So I think this it's really important that we see how much they have risked and gambled and lost here. And if they had not consummated their relationship, to your point, Heidi, they wouldn't have lost everything. Yeah, it's salvageable. Exactly. They could have patched yeah. it back together. Yeah. And she kind of presents herself as like the reason I told my father. Right. And it's this like, cause I'm such a badass, right. Because I wouldn't be blackmailed, but like she ends up crying in a restaurant in a public place because her daddy doesn't love her anymore. Mm-hmm. That's grief. Mm-hmm. That's intense. And they have it in common in a way. Mm-hmm, exactly. I mean, I don't know that I would say that John Grady Cole's father doesn't love him, but he certainly doesn't act like he mm-hmm. loves him. Right. He's essentially right. incapable of being like there they for have him. Orphans. Yeah. yeah. Like she, she, she risked something and her, her pride drove her to react in a certain way. And it, it cost her, her relationship with her dad. It's really, it's, it's a terribly sad sad story like this this section is very moving to me mm-hmm. not just for him but also for her yeah yeah sam what about you i've been thinking about my i think it was the last uh podcast i claimed that i think the father might have been kind of eyeballing john grady cole as a potential um to inherit the hacendado and i i i can't believe it i forgot that he I was unsure about when the father mm. knew that they had consummated the relationship. Yeah, I still don't think it's totally um, clear. <laughs> apparently it was this, I think it was the same night that they, um, that the Greyhounds came into the camp. It was either that night or the day before. But when is that in connection with them playing pool? Because he went out to kill him. He went out to kill John Grady yeah. Cole. But when you were talking about that in connection to the night they were playing pool, billiards, yeah, he clearly, I mean, like having just reread the section, he clearly yeah. did not know that they had consummated the relationship when yeah. they're playing pool together. But I maintain that I think that he, 
might have known that John Grady Cole was interested in his daughter. And I think that he would still be open to the possibility of John Grady Cole taking over as his son-in-law as long as his daughter is like married to him and like the family line continues through her. I think he'd, I still think he'd be open well, to that. For him, I think the father John Grady Cole's skill with horses is a great virtue. And so I think that he's in a way, he's kind of having to decide what matters most, you know, like does he respect yeah. that bloodline or right, yeah. ability? Right. Cause that's one John Grady Cole is one of those two things. JGC is one of those two things. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. well, uh, we have, we'll, we'll talk about the rest of the book next week. And then um, after that, we'll do our Q and a. So uh, if you have questions, be, be, you know, be uh, sure to send them over to us. You can email them to me at david at goldberrybooks.com or you can post them on the Facebook page and um, we'll try to get that thread up um, soon. Maybe we should get that thread up in advance of next week's episode, um, but we'll get it up soon one way or the other. And then um, we also have uh, the Daily Poem, of course, which you can check out. We've got our Lord of the Rings episodes. Those are coming coming to a close here soon. We've got we're in the we're in the home stretch of the Return of the King, uh, Heidi and Ian Andrews and I. And then what's going on with the plays? The thing, guys. The Hamlet Hamlet's coming soon, right? We just finished yep. Hamlet. So a call out for questions for the Q and A episode okay. for Hamlet. Right. So Hamlet's those episodes will go. Have, those are going up soon, right? I, They're not. Yeah. So we listen to the series before you post your questions. We don't, we haven't started posting the right. So, so get ready, get ready We're to listen just to that. Yeah. Finish recording them though. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Right. And then of course we've got Withy Wendell. Hey, Heidi, Lucy listens to Withy Wendell, right? Hmm. You guys listened at least to one yes, episode. She loves it. <laughs> and she just, no, we listened to all of them because she wants to get to the, uh, to the riddles okay. and so she and she's just reading the Vanderbeekers okay for the second time through and so when okay. she saw that Karina Von Glazer was in, on there she's, yeah, she's yeah. excited and she we have a um a bet going I told Lucy she could get a second piercing in her ears <laughs> if she writes a novel this summer oh wow. and so right. she is like intensely writing so a novel she's liking all the um, feedback from the from the writers yes so she's kids. like really into the witty window episodes because it's like helping her grow as a writer and she's getting to like oh, connect cool. with other people who are writing series like she's interested in writing series and stuff so she just oh, that's loves cool. it that's it's awesome. great. It's really fun. I didn't even, and of I, course she, this yep. was not staged. I didn't know that any of that was going to be said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's been great. It's just really encouraging to her in her writing endeavors, um, as well as just being delightfully fun to listen to. And she loves that she knows you and your kids <laughs> and all that stuff. So, well, that's, that's awesome. So we'll have to give her a shout out on a future show, but yeah, yeah. check, check with the window out. If you haven't yet, that's it's, it's for your kids, but you know, we've heard from parents who also liked it too, but you know good big soccer soccer uh road trip type listening um all right well with that for tim mcintosh and for heidi white i'm david kern thanks so much for listening and until next week happy reading <laughs>